Welcome to the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast, an integrative health podcast by Center for New Medicine. We created the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast as an extension of our mission to educate and empower individuals along their health journey. This integrative health podcast will bring you in-depth expert interviews on a plethora of health topics. Tune in bi-weekly for interviews on how to create a non-toxic lifestyle, integrative approaches to treating complex health concerns like diabetes, Lyme's, Hashimoto's, Crohn's, adrenal fatigue, mental, emotional, and spiritual health, cancer prevention, early cancer detection, integrative cancer treatments, and so much more. Through the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast, we hope to provide cutting-edge, science-based information you can use to create a happier and healthier life for you and your loved ones. podcast. I'm your host Leanne and today I'm interviewing Avigail talking all about ADHD intervention, her new book Hyper Healing on her ADHD holistic intervention program. This was such a great interview first of all because we have never had an interview on ADHD on the show but Avigail also brings a really holistic whole person approach to ADHD intervention. So she starts by sharing that she is actually a mother of six children. And even prior to having children, she was working as a teacher, training teachers in the realm of ADHD. We talk about is ADHD purely genetic? If not, what other factors can potentially make ADHD symptoms worse? What areas of a child's life do we need to be looking at? For example, nutrition, stress, family life, exercise. We talk a little bit about if ADHD can sometimes be overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed, how often parents are not receiving much informed guidance when it comes to an ADHD diagnosis for their children, how very often they receive the diagnosis And that's really all the support they're getting or maybe a prescription medication along with it. And then they're kind of sent on their way. So she gives some really clear, tangible tools of how to communicate better with an ADHD child, how to work on creating habits, as well as how to work on positive discipline with an ADHD child. And lastly, something I want to add here is that Avigail is starting an initiative called an ADHD coach for every child. And she is offering free training to anyone who would like to be a host of sort of a book club group around the topic of ADHD working through her book, Hyper Healing. So if you are interested in receiving free training related to her program and starting your own book club support group around ADHD to help train other parents in this form of intervention. So you can find her contact information in the show notes below, as well as a link to her book, her website, her social channels, if you'd like to learn a bit more. (music) 
Abigail, welcome to the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. This is going to be so great, first of all, because we don't have any episodes on this topic. So it really will be our first episode talking about ADHD. But I'm sure, as you know, we are really coming at health from a much more integrative, alternative, holistic approach while still using a lot of science-backed information. And I think there's just so much alignment between the way that you're approaching ADHD. But before we get into all of that, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction personally, professionally, and just kind of how did you get to where you are today? Well, absolutely. First of all, I will start with uh, my, my biggest achievement, which is I am a mom of six amazing children, three boys and three girls. And uh, most of them have been diagnosed with ADHD. But my love affair with ADHD begins way before my first child was born. I started out as a teacher at the age of 20, and I walked into that classroom, and they essentially ate me alive. And uh, I was like, wow, I cannot handle this. I made every mistake in the book, yelling, punishing, throwing kids out of the classroom, all the awful stuff that like causes kids trauma from actually having to go to school every day. Uh, and uh, I was like, wow, I got to learn some more. And I went back and I, I mean, I carried on studying. I, I, I earned my master's in special education. And at that point, I had moved to a school that was, it was an all boys school. And uh, because I was now kind of had more information, they put all of the, uh, let's say, more problematic kids into my classroom. Uh, even though I was I was way younger than most of the teachers there, and they probably had more skills than I did, but they had faith in in my in my degree clearly, and uh, so I was again faced with this amazing group of kids who were really really scary because they were brilliant <laughs> and fun and interesting and curious. I just loved them, but I could not get a big bunch of them to sit and study. And uh, that was really frustrating to me. So I, I remember sitting all night long one night and saying, okay, I got to, breaking my head, I got to figure out how to do this. And I created a program that night. And it's a program that I still teach today to my teachers because I, I teach in college now. And I teach my teachers to use this program in their classroom. And, and I feel like it was just a little gift from heaven that I, that I was able to write that out the program and implement it in my classroom. And suddenly my ADHD kids started learning and it was wonderful, it was wonderful. And at that time I was, I was uh, dating my husband and uh, I think what drew me to him was the same thing that drew me to my adorable students, which was this incredible energy and curiosity and desire to engage life. And, and we know that ADHD is, is genetic in some ways. And uh, so my kids very much inherited their father's magnificent personality, which <laughs> gives their mother a, a good bit of challenges. So after really working on the ADHD for my students, I moved into really focusing on the ADHD for my kids as well. So I've been doing ADHD for my oldest uh, 25 years plus. Oh time. my goodness. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. I just love the verbiage that you use when you're describing it. You know, these magnificent, curious, it's refreshing and so different than I think maybe what the normal verbiage is describing this group of people. Yeah, for sure. And and that's a real shame because yeah. they have so much to uh, to offer the world 
And really, I see ADHD as a healthy variant of a personality, as a different type of personality. And whereas they might be more impulsive, they also engage faster and therefore are much more capable of learning from their environment. And that's a real gift. And I mean, it's so interesting. We do tend to just kind of go, here's the mold, and we all need to fit in the mold. And if you don't fit in the mold, then actually there's something wrong or there's something deficient versus, no, you've just got something different. It's not right or wrong. And we need to work on that mold. That is an Mm -hmm. awful, narrow mold that really kicks out some fabulous people who change the world every day. Mm -hmm. 100%. So going through your website, one of the things I loved that I saw there is that you say when you're starting to initially work with an individual, the question in your mind is, how are they struggling versus what is their diagnosis? And I want to, if you can elaborate on that, how'd you get to that? I would love to hear. Okay, so that actually connects to my earlier story. You know, if if we backed up my story a little bit earlier, as a little kid, I might have been diagnosed with ADHD and I don't I don't have any real symptoms of ADHD as an adult at all and it's not because I grew out of them it's because uh, it was a kind of what I used to call cultural ADHD which means that my parents were getting divorced it was a big family there was a lot of chaos there was a you know a, a lot of challenges that were filling my head And while my friends who kind of things were a little bit more stable for them were able to do homework and get and and get schoolwork done, I was I was physically in the classroom, but really checked out because I was busy with other things. And therefore, I would have been diagnosed with ADHD Mm -hmm. because I didn't do homework and I was a real mess. And when I got my head in gear, as I was able to learn to separate the trauma and stress out of my brain and focus on what I really loved to do, which was studying and learning, then suddenly I became a fantastic student. So I went from this messy, disorganized elementary school student to being asked to be valedictorian in university, so in, in graduate school. And therefore, that, that story really stuck in my mind because when I meet people, what, what we're seeing is someone who's diagnosed with ADHD. And what does that really mean? That means that they have a list of symptoms. Now, these are punishing symptoms. They're difficult. Just like my symptoms as a little child were difficult, not paying attention, not focusing, not getting positive feedback. That's hard. And, um, but there are so many causes of those ADHD symptoms. And mainly what, it, what really is going on is a clash between a healthy individual and that individual's environment. And there are so many environmental factors one of them, obviously, is, is a personality thing, which we talked about last time. So you have a certain instant gratification personality, and that certainly clashes with an environment of the classroom and certain demands that, that our Western world puts on a child with that kind of personality. Not saying that the demands are out of place or wrong, but that that clash exists. Or the clash may be that, that the child is not, uh, physiologically, is not thriving because of a diet that the child is on or not being exposed to nature, animals, uh, and exercise. So that would also be a clash. And then you have trauma, abuse. There's many different environmental factors. And therefore, if we just go with this incredibly narrow concept of this is the diagnosis, you fit the checklist, and therefore you have ADHD, what we miss is the entire story and therefore we can't help the person get out of it 
It's such a beautiful approach. And I think that like so perfectly led into the next question, which is, do you feel that ADHD can sometimes be overdiagnosed just because we're looking at this checklist? And what are some of the negative implications of that if a child maybe is diagnosed with ADHD who maybe doesn't really have something genetic going on, it's just more like you, their their environment kind of created those symptoms that were more acute, but could getting that diagnosis at that age, I don't know, potentially make you think poorly of yourself or when you're getting a diagnosis when it's not right, what are some of the implications of that? Right. So a diagnosis is challenging because like I said, the diagnosis is really based on a checklist and that checklist never tells us why. And so is it neurological? Well, there's kind of this weird assumption that it's neurological, which, which is very, very misguided. And even the the most recent enormous studies do not have a clear conclusion. They'll, they'll, they'll conclude 5% of kids who had a brain scan will show some kind of variant of brain, of, of a brain ad- abnormality, which means that you have 100 kids, only five of them are gonna show any kind of, of, of brain differences. So therefore, I always back away from a neurological dis- explanation for ADHD. But the diagnosis is not under or over, it's, it's misdiagnosed mm. because we're never really getting to the root of the problem. So I do think that getting an ADHD diagnosis is, is, is certainly damaging in terms of it doesn't give the person any tools of, of exiting this diagnosis. The diagnosis is assumed to be something that you're going to hang on to for life and therefore, it kind of sticks you. If you're talking about this kind of box that a student is supposed to fit into, when you're diagnosed with something, you're also stuck into a box. This is you. These are your abilities. And what I, what I don't like about that diagnosis is what it, it, it tells a child they can't. They can't focus very well. There's kind of this glass ceiling of how far they can go. And there's this understanding that, that somehow their brain is broken and they need to be, the brain needs to be fixed with some kind of pharmaceutical. So the, the diagnosis is, is all off and um, it doesn't lead a person to a place of healing. Uh, so I'm, yeah, that, that's really what it is. And, it, and it's always, always bothered me. I remember my daughter being diagnosed, my oldest. So we went through this a few times. By the time we got to the younger ones, I'm like, okay, I get it. I know. We don't, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> but with the oldest, I like really took it seriously. I mean, we go to the doctor and, and we're sitting in the office and, and she hadn't really said hello to us yet because she was typing away for something else. And then she, she presses the printer and my daughter hears the printer and leaps out of her seat to, to get the paper for the doctor and be very, very helpful. And she's so proud of herself. And she hands the paper to the doctor. The doctor finally looks up at us, makes some eye contact and says, slam dunk ADHD. And I'm like, what? That's it. That's, that's the diagnosis. <laughs> like, what did you, how did, what did you say to us? How did you help? And then she hands me a prescription. Now I know most people do not have an experience that's that extreme. That, that's really over the top. But even when you have like a really thoughtful diagnosis, is the doctor checking diet? Is the doctor checking sleep, screen time, uh, trauma, uh, all, all these things? Is, is the diet is, is checking if the child has allergies? You know, if they're not checking that, it's always going to be a useless diagnosis. 
It's so interesting when it's put in that perspective because so many of the diagnoses out there and you get a diagnosis of heart disease, they're going to give you a few things you can do at home, right. et cetera. And so it is so interesting to hear from you that it's pretty much just the diagnosis, maybe a prescription, have a good life. Well, there are some doctors that will give you kind of like a, a checklist. If you okay. if you um, run every day and if you get yourself organized and if you... but. It's a very nice list. The problem is that the person came to your office to begin with because that person was having trouble sticking with Doing the schedule. Doing all those things. <laughs> and, yeah. So if you get all those things done, then, then your symptoms are going to go away. Well, thank you so much, except that I can't get that done. So where do I go from here? And, mm-hmm. and that's where that that's why people opt usually for the pharmaceuticals because they, they don't get the help. And if they're going to turn to a coach... That'll be a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, uh, even if they know that that's a thing that they can turn to, it's very expensive. And mm-hmm. they're being told that the pill is going to help and are going to reduce the symptoms. And in some ways, it, there, there is some value to it. But the only thing it doesn't do is solve the problem. And I imagine in some ways, and of course not for all people, but I imagine in some situations it can become a little bit of a crutch in the sense that I've got this, this is the best it's gonna be for me. And so because that's kind of the message they may have received, they may not look to find other tools to help support them just so that they can live the best, most easeful life possible. So I imagine it's that same kind of thing where probably unintentionally practitioners are putting their patients in a box without realizing it. Yeah, that, that, and that really breaks my heart because the truth is that the diagnosis very often is a curse. You're told this is where you can go and no further. And uh, it's a curse that lands people also using it as an excuse. Oh, it's my ADHD. I don't let my kids right. do that. I, I, because that's, that means you're a very finite person and that means you can't change. It's my ADHD speaking. Well, the truth is, perhaps you're a more impulsive person and perhaps you don't have great tact. Okay, <laughs> so fine, let's deal with that. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean you cannot capable of learning tact, but if it's your ADHD, that's your big excuse. You sign, okay, you're still holding up a big sign. I've got ADHD and therefore I'm going to be tactless. I've got ADHD and therefore... I am going to be working on tact because I don't naturally get it as well as somebody else would. Mm -hmm. So this thing is harder for me and I'm working on it. And that thing, let's say having more energy or being more curious, that's easier for me and I'm going for it there. So Mm -hmm. I never want ADHD to be an excuse. I want it to be an understanding of these things are harder, these things are easier. And how am I going to take a step today that's going to get me stronger and more capable of doing what's challenging for me? And I think this is true of all people. A shy person who might do great in school as having trouble engaging her environment properly and, and saying what she feels. And therefore, great, school is strong for you. Go with it. You excel there. I'm happy for you. And let's work on the other side, which is socially, you're shying away. Why? And what skills can you gain in order to do better at that? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so beautiful. One of the questions I want to ask is, especially 
being a mother who've had a few kids receive this diagnosis, what from the parent's perspective is are some of the most difficult things having a child with ADHD navigating that relationship with their other siblings with between the parents what are some of the most difficult things that you find parents are needing support with so when i when my oldest was diagnosed and it, it may seem funny because i was already in the field and you'd think i'd be ready for it but when it's your own child and i'm talking to all moms and dads when it's your own child it like it's like a dagger in your heart what there's something wrong with my kid my kid is disordered. My kid is disabled. What are you saying? And you kind of skip into the office with this healthy, beautiful child. And then you walk out of there crushed and devastated that your kid is, is defective. And we have to pull back from that. We have to really you know, strengthen ourselves and say, no, this is a healthy kid. We're identifying the area that she needs the most help in. And uh, that's the first step. We have to strengthen ourselves. I think another thing that's really hard for parents, and, and I'm speaking personally for myself as well, is that everyone's got advice. Everyone mm. wants to tell you how to raise this child, and they don't know. They just don't know. And nor did I when I started this journey. We, we know very little about when, when we get started parenting, but we have to graciously thank people for all of their advice because it is coming from a caring loving place in most cases there was the nosy bodies but in most cases people do want to be kind to you and we have to say i need to find the right fit for for my child like i i, I wrote in in the introduction to my book we're reading the the instruction manual for a blender and we've got an irobot so they're giving <laughs> us their instruction manual and i've got a different one and i have to stay strong with my understanding of my kid and those are two things that, that really could help us. So when you have someone come in who's a client, or if we're going through your book, what are some of the areas that, as you say, how can I support this child? What are some of those different areas that you're looking at instead of looking at the diagnosis first? The or that you're teaching a parent, here, hey, here are some of the areas we need to focus on. So I begin my program with the parents. Okay. I want to understand what's going on for the parents and very very often we as parents are we don't we didn't create the problem. We have to understand that well. We love to be guilty and we love for everything to be our fault, but this is not actually our fault this time. Uh, we the kid came that way. This is this is this is the package. It's a great package and this is it. But very often we exacerbate the problem. Why? Because very often the child isn't what I call an instant gratification child. Mm. And we just talked about that a few minutes ago. And that child needs our attention and needs it strong and needs it vigorous and enthusiastic, which means that if we're the type of parent who are going to respond very strongly emotionally in anger and frustration and criticism, that child is going to make sure to trigger that at all times. <laughs> Meaning the kid's in charge, which is kind of scary because the kid doesn't have very good judgment because he's a kid. And the parent in us like disappears because we, we get emotionally overwhelmed. And often that's coming from what I call this big giant suitcase of our past experiences. Kind of we're dragging that on our shoulders. So often we're responding to our little kid as though it's 
an ex-husband, an uncle we didn't like, a critical parent, a and all of our old emotions just come charging out and crushing a kid who just triggered it by saying something in the same tone that 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 came from someone that caused the stress. And therefore, we've got to start with ourselves because we have to change the paradigm in our home. We A, we have to become the adults and the leaders of the house because a kid with ADHD needs clear, strong leadership. If we leave it to them, they're going to be scared and they're going to be constantly checking their limits, which is why they... I, I know that as a teacher, when the, the really within the first 10 minutes of the first new school year, or the first day of the new school year, I will see I will see my ADHD kids right away because the first thing they do is check their limits by misbehaving. They want to know that they are safe. They want to know that I'm going to stop them and say, we don't go there, we go here. That we can't do, that we can do. But if we get intimidated and let them run us over, it's going to be a collision course for the rest of the year. So we start with us as parents and as teachers and we work out that stress and we, and we get out of this habit loop that, that gives our children way too much energetic response for our, for, from our emotional space, which, not, which might not be very healthy. And then we can focus on the kid. And when we're focusing on the kid, first we're checking out what's going on. Is this an instant gratification personality, which would be highly genetic? In which case, I have a full program for the parents. We're working first on communication because once we get rid of our need to have strong negative communication, we've got to replace that with strong positive communication. So first we work on very strong and fulfilling compliments and then we work on building habits because this kid is missing every habit in the book. Why? Not because they're not capable of building habits, just because the habits that they would form, they're not forming habits because they want everything now and fast and interesting and fun. Mm. And if you want everything with novelty, you never create a habit because we need to have repetitive behavior in order to create a habit. So we work on creating habits in a fun and good way, which any parent could follow that program. And then we work on punishment, setting limits. And punishment is not scary. It's scary not to punish because once again, we've abandoned our child and we've given them this horrible message that we don't have faith in them that they can do better. So we've got to engage in that. Once we look at instant gratification personality, we're also going to look at diet. We're going to look at the kid's health. Runny nose, asthma, allergies, dry skin, uh, often needing antibiotics, stomach aches, headaches, very tired, all that stuff. And then if, if we see that, we're going to work on diet. We're going to get straight into diet. We're also going to work on exercise. Then we look at other lifestyle things like um, abuse or trauma, screen time, and, uh, and sleep. And there's a bunch of other, other lifestyle skills that we're going to look at. And a parent doesn't have to go through the entire program. If their kid sleeps great, skip it. But let's go on to seeing how many hours is your kid clocking in on their, tele- on their, on their smartphone? And mm. is that exacerbating symptoms? So I want to ask some more questions about a few of these different ones. So with communication, we'll just start there since that was kind of one of the starting points after we address the parents a little bit. What are some of the common communication barriers that you're seeing parents come to you with 
And then what are some of the more positive shifts you're helping them make in terms of communication? Okay, so parents come with the communication issue because their kids are making life so difficult, (laughs) really. And I say to them, okay, so tell me two things that your kid does that's really great. And the parents are just kind of sitting there dumbfounded. They can't find anything. They're like, well, um, nothing, nothing coming to mind. Because from the morning till the evening, the kid is tantruming and bothering siblings and all that stuff. So the first thing we do is dig up the good things that the child does. And we, and I have the parents actually practice complimenting their kids for those things. And then that, that's, that's one thing. We, at least we dig, we, we pull out the tiny, tiny little good stuff. There's always good stuff to find. And then we, we work with the parents on bringing down their negative emotional energy. And we work with them on, on identifying the triggers. And at that trigger point, I'll have them choose something to deescalate. Either it's going to be leave the room quickly. I had this one mother say to me, this was a mother that was, that was uh, teaching me about parenting when I was a young mom. She said to me, listen, I never yell at my kids. And I'm like, really? Are there people like that in the world? She says, I, I never <laughs> yell at my kids, but I go to the bathroom a lot. So she just like, she just like, quick, got to go. And she checks out for a minute or two calms herself down is like okay the kid is seven i can do this and comes back and is calm because we need to respond to their bad behavior or the behavior we really want them to stop in a calm way because if it's not calm like i said they're going to trigger it again so we have to bring ourselves or we can say we can have like a joke prepared for ourselves that we say the minute we feel triggered we'll kind of say the joke in our own heads or we'll have a beautiful sunset hanging in the kitchen or a big stop sign. Something that all, all of the bad behavior goes down in the kitchen as far as, I mean, as far as my house is concerned. Uh, so, so we have something to stop us in our tracks and then we replace it very quickly with very, very high quality compliments. And we catch our kids doing the right things. And we and the biggest mistake we make is that we compliment and then we add something negative. Oh, you put your backpack in the right place. Well done. So proud of you. You helped me organize the house. I wish you did that every day. Boom, mm. gone. The compliment has been destroyed. So it's just like, like if I said to you, wow, great meal. Thanks for this delicious, thanks for having me over for this wonderful meal. I loved all of it. The dessert was wonderful. The chicken was like a little dry. Like I gave you a nice compliment, right? <laughs> Don't you feel awful? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's what we do as parents. And that's the thing I say, that's it. Nope, we don't do that ever again. And uh, so besides, so there's a couple of things we don't do. What we do do is we give the children, we tell the kids exactly what they did right. A full laundry list. We, you walked in the door, you smiled at me, you put your backpack in the right place, you helped me keep the house organized, you made my day. So we'll say all those things. Why? To counterbalance our fabulous ability to write lists when our kids do something wrong. You came in the house, you slammed the door, you made noise, you threw your backpack all over the place and look at the, with your coat on the floor. Could you, you just don't care less about the amount of work I do cleaning this house. So we're great at that and we're awful at the, at the compliment. But here's the thing, when we're yelling at our kids, they don't hear anything. We sound like, rah, 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 rah. 
That's what we sound like, like we're crazy people. But when we're giving a compliment, they hear every single word. If we can do that within two weeks, our kids are gonna be hearing those instructions. Oh, coming in the house with a smile is good. I wanna do that again. Mom likes that. I just handed her candy. I'm just giving out these emotional candies to my kids. And that's what starts turning the household around. And it's dramatic and miraculous and a lot of work. Uh huh. Yeah. And I imagine too, something I was thinking about is for a child with ADHD, most of the time, what we're interpreting as misbehavior is them just being them. It's not that there is malintent behind it. Right. And so I think it can be really off-putting and confusing and jarring to a child when there really was no malintent. Mom, I wasn't trying to do something bad and now mom's yelling at me or dad's yelling at me. And so feeling maybe a little bit unsafe of, as to like, I can't judge when I'm going to get yelled at because I'm not trying to do anything bad. Right. And that's bit. huge because I talk a lot about the social thing and with ADHD. And that's, that's another thing we have to look at as parents. Is my kid socially immature? And, and not reading social cues, body language. And if that's the case, then these behaviors that embarrass us when our kids do them, like, like your, your kid asking someone that walks in the house, are you pregnant? Like things like that. Like it's a little bit embarrassing. It's way off. Uh, but the thing is the kid didn't know. So we're going to yell and punish our kid for being tactless or saying things that they have no idea. It's like demanding that your kid speaks French and, and then... But, but they don't know French. So we have to pull ourselves together and say, stop. The kid was not trying to be bad. The kid just doesn't know the rules. So if we slow ourselves down and say, okay, let's break this down. This is how it goes. We never say to a woman that she looks like she's pregnant. Why do we not do that? Well, she'll feel like she's fat or it's none of our business. It's a private thing. And maybe, you know, she's... She doesn't want to tell anyone yet. So we break it down. We explain it. The child is a bright child. As a matter of Mm -hmm. fact, the studies do indicate that they have higher IQ, but they're missing something. So don't smack your kid for missing something. I don't mean smack physically. I mean that that, that mental yelling smack. Verbal smack. The verbal (laughs) smack. Don't do that because your child's missing a cue and that's our job our job is to interpret the world to our children to our intelligent children and then they'll get it after communication so there was one more and then there was discipline punishment what was the one in between that's the habits creating habits habits. okay so let's talk about that what yeah what are same thing like what are some of the difficulties with the habits here from the child's perspective why can it be so difficult And then from the parent's perspective, what are some of those tools and shifts you're helping them make? Sure. So the reason these kids need major habit training is because they don't like doing anything that's boring. They love starting things because it's exciting. I was just cleaning uh, one of my rooms the other day and I am pulling out like a hook rug project and a and a building project and like they're all half done from one kid she she loves starting things but then it gets boring because she now she knows how to do it now she wants to learn how to do something new so therefore if you're always jumping from thing to thing you never get good at anything mm-hmm. so what's always remarkable to parents of kids with ADHD is 
why every morning it's a shock to the child that, that he has to get up in the morning. Like, stop, you know this. We've done this <laughs> thousands of times. But yet every morning it's like a whole new experience. And the reason is because there's no motivation there. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing novel about getting up this morning. It's just stupid old school again. And I don't want to <laughs> do that. So because the child doesn't hook into uh, creating the habit, and we as parents are so exhausted from it. So what do we do? We drag the kid out of bed. We throw the clothing on the child. We, we, we yell at him. We you know, push him into the bathroom to brush his teeth. So basically we are the engine for the child. And if we're the engine, the child certainly doesn't create a habit. So we have to back off and not be the engine. And then we have to kind of help the child create a habit from outside. The way we would do that is with a, uh, with a chart. We would take a chart and it only works if we do it for a full month. And that's really important for us to know because we can't change a habit in a week. And so parents cannot give up in the middle, which is why I say to the parents, make the chart, make the program according to your ability, not according to your child's needs, because we need this to be a daily event. And if you could do a routine for 10 minutes a day, Go with 10 minutes. Your kid needs more than that, no problem. You'll do that later. But start with something you can do. And what we'll take, what we'll do is we'll take the morning and we'll break it down into four chores. Waking up at seven, getting yourself dressed, brushing your teeth, uh, eating something, uh, or heading out the door with a snack in your hand. Whatever it is that that household needs. And then, and then the child is, why is the child willing to work with us to create the habit? because there's a reward involved. Now people get very nervous about rewards and I say, do you work? Do you have a salary? That's a reward. When someone <laughs> does good work, we reward them for it. And that's, that's fine, that's a good model. And it's not something we do all day because our relationship with our child is not transactional. It is something is, is much more holistic and therefore it's only for this hour. So I like to do it for 40 minutes to an hour we make the chart, we make a huge deal out of every step the child succeeds at. That's that instant gratification. We're complimenting, we're, we're cheering, we're happy. Then we give the child a check. That check becomes the child's money. And then at the end of the day, the child can cash in on it or the child can wait for a bigger prize. I like prizes that are experiential. Going out to play football, going to a game, um, going out to dinner or to just get dessert, ice cream with one of the parents, sleeping over at a grandparent's house. There's all sorts of uh, experiential prizes, getting to the parent to read an extra book uh, in the evening or choosing dinner tomorrow night. There's lots of different ideas that, that parents can, can use in order to reward their children. The child can choose a reward and then the parent gives it a value. Let's say, oh, sleeping at grandma's house, well, that'll be 20 points. Uh, reading an extra book, that'll be five points. And we could also have uh, other prizes, you know, something purchased, uh, uh, you know, we, that's fine. But what we're doing is we're, we're giving a level of, um, of push to the child to, to participate with us through the prizes and the compliments. But after a month, we're slowing down the actual points, and, the points and the chart, and we're just continuing with the compliments. At that point, it becomes a routine for the child and the child could continue on, or we could make the program even more um, elegant, and we could say, okay, all the things you did now are one point, and now we're adding making your bed and making your own sandwich. 
And mm-hmm. then we make it, we, we expand it to give the child more and more skills. So, and that's something, it's, it's a great program. There are some kids who are chart rejectors. They, they don't like being <laughs> controlled that way. I've got one like that. She's amazing and don't even try to control her at all, ever. Uh, so in that case, I have another option, which would be, which is all written out very clearly in the book, which is an agreement, which, which would require also some bit of punishment. Chart has no punishment at all, but one very strong word to parents, make sure this is not your program, make sure it's your child's program. If you're begging and pleading with your child to get points, and you're saying, come on, come on, you can do it, then you are the engine again. Don't do that. The child has to want to do it. And if the child's not wanting to do it, you've got to check if you're being consistent with your response and with your points and with your prizes, if the prizes are right, and if the chores are right. If this actually fits, if it's too hard or too easy, then we lose motivation as well. But don't be the engine. If the child's not doing it, on his own or on her own will, it doesn't work because this is all about the child's desire. You want the child's desire to be redirected to something that will actually help him or her succeed in life. Okay, so discipline. I think this is one I'm excited to hear your take on because there's a million perspectives on this. And I imagine this is the one that maybe in with ADHD kids in particular can be the most difficult because they're quote unquote misbehaving. There might be a lot of discipline being dished out or vice versa. We don't know how to control them. There's no discipline. What are you seeing? I, what are I the tips? What are the barriers? <laughs> these, these kids completely wear us out to the point that we just give up because they, they are punishment resistant for the reason I said before, that when we yell at them and punish them strongly, it's inadvertently rewarding them. Now, just to clarify, they don't want us to yell at them. This is something that's subconscious. They want our energy. They want our, our attention. And therefore, they'll, they'll take it, however we're dishing it out. But, they don't, so, but the problem is that when we uh, lose our own skills and we give up, we are abandoning our child to his own um, decision-making. Uh, so we don't want to do that. What, and so therefore, I actually use a program that was developed by uh, Dr. Alan Kasdan, which I highly recommend that parents look up because he has an um, amazing program. Uh, so what we do is uh, we, have, we have two systems. One system is uh, punishing a child by um, by having the child do some kind of service in the house, like some kind of um, cleanup or something like that, which, by the way, bothers a lot of parents because they say, one second, my child is supposed to love to do chores in the house. And I'm like, really? Your child, you know, by the time the child's five, right, like you like (laughs) folding the laundry, is that fun for you? So really what we're doing is giving our child a very positive message. First of all, we're saying, stop. You're making a mistake. You can choose to do better. And when you choose to do better, I'm giving you the tools to do better. And you're folding the laundry or cleaning a window or a couple of dishes. That's actually your way of apologizing. And that's not a punishment. That's a way of apologizing. So when you wash the dishes to help me on on Saturday, that's also you making our environment a better place to live in. And when you wash the dishes after you've done something wrong, you're doing the exact same thing. Because I have faith in you. I know 
that you can get out of this and you can get out of it in a positive way. So giving, if you give over that message in a clear way, because you didn't yell when the child did something wrong, you say, wow, that what you just did, smacking your brother is against the rules in our house. And therefore, you're going to have to wash some dishes now. Parents also worry, like, one second, you know, the, the crime doesn't connect to the punishment. And I think to myself, okay, you're right. You're 100% right. But when I speed and I get a ticket, the crime and the punishment also don't line up. Like, why do I have to pay because I sped? The police officer should put something on my car that doesn't let me speed anymore. <laughs> but they don't do that. What we're doing is, is stopping someone in their tracks and saying, no good. This is my message to you that you need to stop that and do better. And the more we give children the ability to make a choice and use that word, make a choice to do better, we're empowering them and we're giving them tools for their entire life. Now, very often the child's going to be like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, no, thank you. That's not really, you want me to do something right now for you? In which case we move to plan B which is we'll take either a privilege or an item away from that child for a short amount of time. If all the kids are eating ices, then I know we're doing holistic and healthy. I don't usually give out ices. It's just an example that popped in my head. Then we would, <laughs> then we would that child would either be delayed in getting their ices or they, would, or they wouldn't get it that day. Or if they're in the middle of playing with a certain toy or there's a little blanket that they particularly like, then they, we would put it away for an hour and then have it um, and have the child get it back afterwards. We never want to go head to head with a child. And sometimes a child will start to tantrum, not even sometimes, often. The child will be very, very upset and therefore up their bad behavior. What we're going to do is we're going to up the punishment a little bit. I was going to take away this puzzle for half an hour. Now it's going to be 45 minutes. And then I get out of there because I'm the oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> So will the child throw stuff and break stuff? It's possible. Will I be able to stop that child right now? Of course not. So therefore, the best thing I could do is let the child get, get the steam off. The punishment stands. And then later on, when the child's calm, we could talk about what just happened. Because the next step is an emotional intervention. We don't leave it at the behavioral because in general, the reason for the bad behavior is an emotional cause. So we are gonna discuss it later on and we're not gonna tolerate property destruction, but we will give the child, and, and we're not tolerating it by standing by our punishment, but we will then slowly need that less because the more the child feels safe that I've punished clearly and not punitively and angrily, then they feel like they could depend on me. And therefore, I don't cancel the punishment. And this is another message to moms and dads, and this is something I grappled with a lot. If you choose a punishment that's too hard for you and you start feeling sorry for your child, then you're going to cancel <laughs> the punishment and ruin the whole thing. So choose a punishment that's not too bad for you. I remember we were, we were on our way to an amusement park, and um, one of my daughters starts smacking her two brothers in the car, because that's when they choose to smack each other when we're all like, you know, sardined in the car. And uh, so I said to her, I said to her, listen, we, we, don't, we don't hit. That's not a thing we're allowed to do in our family. And therefore, when we get to the amusement park, you and I are going to sit at the entrance and wait 15 minutes. And then we're going to go into the park. Everyone else will go ahead of us. 
And she was obviously very upset. She starts to cry. And she says, and my poor husband, he's sitting there. He's like, uh, sweetie, say sorry to mommy. And <laughs> she's like, sorry, mommy. And I said, well, thank you so much. That was, that was a really a good word you said. And then husband's like, <clears throat> you, want to, you want to say something to her? He was very uncomfortable that, that she was still having a punishment. He was really suffering that she was being punished. And I said, listen, this is the punishment. We're going to be fine. But I really appreciate your apology. And guess what? This is the amazing part about punishment is that when a child feels safe and respected because I expect more from her, she feels closer to me. And those 15 minutes at the entrance to the amusement park were fabulous. We had a great time. We laughed, we played, and then when we went in, I said, go ahead, run. I don't, I don't have to continue the punishment. I have to remind her that she's misbehaved. She's paid her debt. <laughs> she's done. Right. And we're back to good. And there was no yelling, and there was no anger, and, and our relationship has just gotten stronger. Yeah. I imagine being able to, as the parent, not hold a grudge and really let it go and it's just like we're not carrying these things in to the next to the next we've we've had the punishment that case is closed we're moving on right and jordan peterson always says he he said something great which i love to quote he says so many great things but this one i really love to quote he says that that if we don't respond to our children's behavior we will take revenge on them if we let them run all over us then we're human and taking revenge on our kids is really bad. We uh -huh. have got to not do that. We really have to be loving, caring adults. And the best way to do that is by choosing to punish them kindly instead of letting them behave however they want. And then, then coming down on them in very harsh ways. That We look in the mirror afterwards like, oh my God, that is not the mother I ever wanted to be. Do you also work with parents in terms of verbiage? Because I imagine, too, what can happen is, again, unintentionally, but we're saying, how could you do that? You're so bad versus, and then it's really kind of coming off as if I am bad. I'm inherently bad right. or wrong or whatever versus like in this moment, I maybe didn't live up to my best standard yeah. Is that something that you see a lot? For sure. There, there are a couple of things that we never say, and there are a couple of things we always say. We never say always and never. <laughs> you <laughs> always do that. You always leave the refrigerator door open. You never clean your room. Those are things we, we will not do because that just stamps a person, and that stays forever. And so we, we don't do that. Uh, but what we, we will always do is we will talk to our children in terms of behavior and choices and process. You took a step in the right direction. Wow, that was, that was challenging. You, you were very strong at, at organizing your room. Today, you seem to have, you seem to have, or be struggling with that. So we're talking about the person is a good person. The child is a great child. The child is made a poor choice. Why? The child, and that, and that question will be to the child, why was it hard for you to make that good choice today? And uh, we're going to, so therefore we're always in process. We're never going to comment on the child, you are an angry person. We're going to say, your behavior is quite angry right now. What's upsetting you? 
So we're always in process and we're always taking steps in the right direction. And we are never looking for perfection. So those are really the, the guidelines for parents, which saves us from a lot of really bordering on abusive sometimes uh, behavior, which is so unintentional. Uh-huh, uh-huh, totally. So many questions keep coming up in my mind. I'm going to be conscious of the time so I don't take us too over. But so first of all, do you ha notice that many kids, when they come to work with you, or through hearing with parents or in the classroom, because maybe they haven't had this kind of, this level of intentional intervention, how is their confidence? Is their confidence really low often? Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, unfortunately, very often, the child's confidence is low. They blame everything on themselves. So whereas their friend sitting next to them will make a mistake in a math test or whatever it is, and be like, oh, I made a mistake. What did I do wrong? When, meaning it's kind of like, I compare it to tripping off the sidewalk, which is like, ouch, that didn't feel good. I twisted my ankle. Um, I gotta be more careful about where I step. And then there's the kid who's, who's got this diagnosis but has, and thinks that they're limited and thinks that there's something wrong with them. So for them, when they make a mistake, it's like falling off a building. And, you know, when, when you fall off the sidewalk, you can analyze it. You can say, that hurt. What did I do wrong? But when you've fallen off the building, you're just bloody on the floor and all you can see is your pain. So you're, you're kind of focused inwards on I'm suffering. Things are bad for me. And you can never go to the next step of I'm good. What went wrong here? And that's where mm -hmm. that low self-esteem comes from because it's always I'm bad. I'm stupid. I'm lazy. And which none of that is true in most cases. And, uh, and you never get to, I'm great. Sometimes I am a little impulsive and I work too quickly and I don't review my questions. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why I made this, this mistake. And therefore, step forward. You did well. Because mm -hmm. it, there's no such thing as failure. There's either success or a learning experience, but that's something we have to get these kids into, and they're very far away from that when, when mm -hmm. I meet them in most cases. And then speaking of school, I have to ask this question because I imagine it's a big issue for maybe a lot of parents is they could now be using this intervention, doing all the right things at home, send them off to school, and it's a completely different environment. What are some of your thoughts, your tips for navigating that school home transition? Guys, I've had a crazy time with that, uh, <laughs> really. Because, and it's funny because I, I coach parents and teachers. So, but when it came to my own kids, I would say to the teacher, maybe she needs a chart. Maybe she needs a little bit of this kind of intervention, that. And they're like, no, we don't do that. I'm like, all right, that's, that's great. Okay, so... Usually, I, I'm a teacher, and I'm going to say most teachers really want the best for their students. They really want the students to succeed, and in most cases, they don't have the skills. The reason why the teachers don't have the skills is because they understand ADHD to be a neurological disorder with a fix. And, and, and if the parents are refusing to use that inter intervention, to use a pharmaceutical, the, the teacher's like, uh, there's nothing I could do for you. You're not helping yourself. How can I help you? So that kind of gets in the way. But if you can get past that, and there are parents who will choose to use a, a, a pharmaceutical, and that's, and that's fine. But 
Even so, like I said before, the only thing it doesn't do is fully solve the problem because you cannot help a child develop skills, social skills, learning skills through a pill. It'll just get them quieter. They're still going to be tactless. They're still going to be they're they're still going to make all of these ADHD kind of symptomatic mistakes. So, therefore, even if the child is, the teacher has to get on board. I find actually one of my chapters I, I put aside just as a bridge between school and home. Um. And I, because parents do get very lost. And, and this is specifically to, an, I have a full chapter to answer your question. <laughs> and I give a lot of tips of how to communicate with the teacher. And what the parent has to be willing to put in a little bit of extra work. The parent has to be willing to make the behavior chart, to present and a uh, intervent a discipline intervention and that's why i give the parents those tools so that when they come to the meeting they could say you're working really hard you've got tons of students you're doing the best you can so this is what i'm bringing so that we can work as a team and usually when we do that there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of um progress and if the teacher doesn't, I actually give a bunch of advice uh, at the end of the chapter so that uh, for a teacher who's not participating for her own reasons, and I'm not judging here, then a parent can still do certain things to help the child in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. So can you tell us the name of your book, where we can get it? I'm sure you know if it's online, of course, we'll be linking to it in the show notes so it's really easily accessible. Okay, so my book, which I don't have, I would have shown it to you. It has such a cute cover. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's called Hyper Healing, and uh, one word. And the reason I like it, we actually finished writing it during the first lockdown when my husband and myself and all of our kids were, were stuck together really bonding in a strong strong way and one of my kids who's he's a builder he likes to he's got these golden hands all totally off the charts adhd stuff but he can build anything so he and his friends don't tell anybody that he was getting together with his friends and uh, they were building this amazing like dr seuss looking car <laughs> they were oh taking bikes apart and using the bike type they were amazing i love this thing and uh and so I found a picture that looked very much like my imagination of him jumping in his car and flying down the mountain with his friends, like flying off the back of the car. Um, but anyway, it's it's a it's a full program for parents of kids with, with healthy kids with ADHD symptoms, and it really walks the parents through their own journey for themselves. And then we focus on the kids and go through the entire intervention program. It's very important to me that this be accessible at a cheap price so that parents don't need to go and spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars on a coach or on a therapist and they really can get everything they need just in one book. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so excited. It'll definitely, as I said, be linked in the show notes, your website as Thank well. Thank you. But Abigail, thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you. What a great conversation. I love your questions. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>